When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Here he is. Here's the man that all of you have been waiting for. <laughs> Here's the man that America loves, the world's greatest Jews are player. A man of infinite sensitivity. A man who is sent here by this radio station every week as a public service. This radio station recognizes that there's plenty of love figures on the air. And they send you, as a public service, a genuine figure for you to hate. Get a little bit out of you. And now here he is, your friend and mine, Gene Shepard. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's cool. Oh, And I say to you, when I am elected, I say, follow me. Now's the time to go down and burn down the city hall. Let's go. <laughs> what a rotten bunch. Oh, everywhere you see it, you see it is beginning to sneak in. There is a new world a creeping in. And you can see it on every side. And I think tonight we will spend our evening dissecting the brave new world that is about to emerge. I have here a clipping, which I hold before you. How many of you went to school? <laughs> Three hands just went up. <laughs> no, let's, let's be honest. All of us went to school, but not many of us went to school. There's all, have, by the way, have you, ever, have you ever, speaking of going to school, how many of you feel that little rotten sense of hate. When you see those television shows when they've got Fordham Prep over here and they've got the Bronx High School of Science over here. Yeah. Hear them? Oh, boy. And this guy comes on, he says, yes, it's time now for a battle of wits. Hit the whammy. It's time now for these two high schools to compete with their fantastic intellects. And these little kids come up with quotations from ancient Greek philosophers and scholars, and they've all got that same look of the kid that you grew to hate. <laughs> when you were in school, that kind of intense look with the glasses, that look of a, of a kind of little human piranha, little chutzpah sharks. You know what I mean? They, just, they sit there with that eager look of the kid whose hand all the way through life he has to practically tie it down to keep it from always going up, you know. Always up in the air, you know, waving. <laughs> me, me, I know the answer. Me, me, me. And all the rest of us sit there. The one ambition we've got in our life is not to be called on. <laughs> Listen to her back there. <laughs> A second grade teacher. Well, I know you're kind. 
I remember Miss Shields looking down from second grade. This is where I learned so much of my early, my early life that came out of this. Miss Shields had that roving eye of the second grade teacher who somehow could spot the one kid in the class that did not memorize the poem. <laughs> and guess who it was? I'd sit back there, you know, have you ever tried to ad-lib Oliver Wendell Holmes? <laughs> and what's worse, get away with it, you know? A boy stood on a burning deck, a peck of apples. No, that's not it. Uh, we'll put that one on the air after the show. How many of you know a number of unbelievably obscene <laughs> revisions of classical poems? How would you like a show tonight of that? I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, all right, I'll give you a few, and you'll have to fill in the rest, see? This is direct communication. How many of you learned this famous song? Uh, <clears throat> oh, the sun shines bright on little red wings. That's right. <laughs> That's right, I can tell a Sunday school teacher from a mile away. You don't know the rest? How about this one? Uh, <laughs> All right, fill it in there, and you'll have to tell her on the way home to Jersey what it is. <laughs> oh, yes, we had one. I'll never forget one that we used to sing. I'm in the Army, see? <laughs> and you wouldn't believe the parody that exists on the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, boy, I, I look back on it now with embarrassment as I remember some of the things that went on in the back row of these platoon formations. In fact, I would tell you this, three guys out of ten who were in the Army learned how to be ventriloquists. <laughs> I learned to throw the sound of a chicken clucking the length of a football field. I would make it sound like another battalion is doing it. I don't know if, oh, you know, speaking of those great moments, and, and, and these are the scenes you never see in the movies about the Army. <laughs> There's a lot, isn't there, friend? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can think of those great moments, those great, terrible moments, uh, lying in the barracks, 3 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, the whistles blow, the lights go on, and this sergeant hollers, and, oh, Helmet line, a raincoat, that's all. Medical officer's on his way, let's go. I'll let that soak in. You didn't get that, that's just as well. I can see that I have tonight as our audience the Bobsy twins. They've come down from the farm. Flossy. Well, I, I, I remember this great moment in the Army, see. And it's a, it's a battalion formation. Actually, it's a regimental formation. And we're in this big hollow square. All the battalions are lined up, company by company, platoon by platoon, big hollow square. And in the middle of it all is a stand, bunting all over. The band is way up on a hill. And they've been playing those favorite service songs, things like, uh, oh, uh, 
Oh, off we go into the wild blue yonder. Oh, I got a parody on that one. See, I was in the Signal Corps, and they hated the Air Corps. <laughs> and our, our, our parody is just, well, they had one on ours, too. So here's the hollow square. You got the picture? We have all been drawn together. It is a, it is a Sunday formation, which is unusual in the Army. And it had ritual, ceremony. We had all been dressed to the nines. There'd been a big, we had a big uh, inspection. Our belt buckles were shined. We had all our stuff on and our little things all shined up in our hats. And Company K was standing in attention. And standing up there on that platform, I could see it almost as if it were yesterday. There's a little knot of high-ranking officers. We are there to celebrate the fact that our Brigadier General has just gotten his second star. He had become a major general. That is to say that he had graduated from Gargantua into King Kong. <laughs> and there he is, see, they're all up there and they've got flags and they've got those big, two big stars are floating in the wind there. And they play ta 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 And you can hear the drums playing and the things booming out. And way off in the distance, you can hear the regimental aide-de-camp. He calls out, Regiment! Oh, would I love to do that once. <laughs> Regiment's attention. Not just, hey, you, stand up. The highest rank I ever achieved was corporal. And I was limited to one guy at a time. A PFC, you know. So I never once was allowed to holler, Second Army! On the stick! <laughs> well, I could hear that voice, you know, it's floating out. It was beautiful ceremony, just magnificent. If you like that kind of thing. And then I hear all the way down, you know, you hear all the little company commanders and the second lieutenants, they're all repeating the order. You can hear them, Company attach, hut! And then you'd hear, Platoon attach, hut! And our little platoon came to attention. We're pulling our gun. We're standing there. And I'm going to tell you, I know, this is the reason I'm telling you this story, is that I have carried, ever since that time, in my craw, the knowledge that I know a man who pulled the perfect crime. I saw it happen, and I ain't going to chicken now. I'll give him a phony name. Gasser. If there's anything that bugs each one of us, it's to have a friend get away with something. Gasser, see. And Gasser's standing three guys down from me in the next rank just ahead, see, so I could see his ears. We're all standing there. And way up there in the distance, you heard the aide de camp say, Hey, regiments! We are going to honor Major General Blodgett M. Bullard, West Point, magnificent soldier who has now gotten his second star. And his attention. The entire battalion, miles around us, 
Hundreds of men stand there. And out of each eye is a little pinpoint of hate. <laughs> Focused on this little round fat man up there. This little man who looked for all the world, he looked like a combination of all the all the bowling team captains you've ever seen in your life. All the Rotary Club insurance men. All the high school principals. And there was a slight suggestion that he remind he reminded everybody of everybody's aunt. There was a quality of antiism about him. You know, there's a way of wearing a combat jacket. His kind of flared out like a little skirt, you know. A little pot in the back and the front. And, you know, those were supposed to be a light, uh, well, there was, there was supposed to be a kind of a light gray dress officer's uniform. He had the way to make the pinks look pink. They were pink. And there's that little banty rooster standing down there. And he's got these two stars on his shoulder. Not one, but two. Now, maybe you don't know anything about stars. A lot of you guys are civilians. Right to the core. I could tell a gummy look coming out of here. You know? uh, look, you know, the idea that a major general is just another soldier. <laughs> oh, boy, and a pig, you know what. Let me tell you, and, and they're mythical. You know, you never really see major generals. You just hear about them. You see their name at the bottom of long mimeograph sheets. It says, Blodgett M. Bullard, M-A-J slash G-E-N slash S-I-G slash C-O-R-P slash... It goes all the way. And so here he is in the flesh. We have never even seen this guy. We're all standing. We are there to pay homage to him getting his second star. There's a silence. And the general in charge of all Signal Corps yucks, a four-star general, no less, legendary. At that time, he ranked General Eisenhower. He had stars that went all the way down and up and down the side, <laughs> up into the air. And he came out on the platform, and he is going to pin the second star on Bullard, our general the general we were supposed to go through hell for. And incidentally, we did. <laughs> the only thing is, he made it. It's the wrong kind of hell, you know. And so this other general got up there and they had the PA system, and he says, Men! Oh, well, God's pulling. <laughs> Come on in, General! How the Army Signal Corps going... You kind of like to have, it's kind of warm painting to realize that a four-star general also has feedback. <laughs> hey, see, come on in, General of the Army, Signal Corps. I am privileged to be here to present to your beloved commander. He was waiting to hear the other side, see. Here's. Major Generalship, we all know that this magnificent commanding officer exemplifies the highest ideals of the U.S. Army Signal Corps. He represents 
the Sonobalaza that will lead us to victory against the evil enemies of democracy. And if there was ever an evil enemy of democracy, it was Blodgett M. The one thing he did not want was to hear any dissenting voices. He was known as Old Iron Bottom. I wish I could tell you what he was really known as. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it started with a B. And he stood up there and he looked down over us and then he continued and he said, Let us know as we think of this great soldier and all of you young men who are about to go against Hitler's legions let us now pause and by ten seconds of silence honor this great soldier. Right. And then suddenly, after three precisely calculated beats, I saw Gasser's left ear twitch imperceptibly. I saw his throat swell with his G.I. collar, but... And then clearly and crisply, in that quiet, ambient air, floating from company to company, battalion to battalion, regiment to regiment, the single cry. <laughs> it was the sound of a chicken laying an egg, which in the army has special connotations. Well, you never saw a scene like that. It floated all the way on up to the platform and all the way on out to the South Pacific. It floated out to North Africa and little old Blodgett M. Bullard up there. You could see his chest just go up slightly. And we knew that we were going to pay dear. For that little cluck, that little chicken that laid an egg in Company K. And there was a brief flurry up there. I could see the general pinning the other star. And by the way, it was the first time I ever saw stars that were battery-operated. <laughs> he turned them on in his pockets. He had a little battery. And they shone with a cold blue light. A silver malevolent light just laid out there for a second. He looked down on us. And his, his answer was just simple and to the point. All he said was, Thank you, Major General Curmudgeon. I accept this second star with humility, but I intend to exercise the additional power that you have seen fit to bestow on me. And his eyes swept all of us. And we knew. Goodbye. USO. <laughs> Goodbye, three-day pass. Goodbye, PFC strike. Hello, KP. Hello, pots and pans. Hello, chicken. I can't say the last word. And it was sad, you know, to see us all marching out in formation, all of us with feathers. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's a funny thing about the Army. I, I, I think I told this story once more. And, and I, I know I told this story, but it was one of the great moments in my life. How many of us, we're truly Americans, you know, sit down here in the limelight in the village, in the heart of decadence, where beauty flows like a great, rich river down to the sea? <laughs> right, gang? Truth, passion. We're all Americans, you know. And there's one thing that the American heart really warms to. That is, I say more than anything else, and that is making it big as a phony. <laughs> Listen to him. Oh, yeah, you know. We all secretly want to make it big. You know, wouldn't it be great to have the telephone ring tonight? You come back in your crummy, rotten little pad. You sit down. You look around. There's cracks in the walls. You've come back from this movie, you know, where Cary Grant lives in this fantastic pad. And you've seen the sign above the movie house that says, Get more out of life. Go to a movie. And the only way you can do it is by staying in the movie 24 hours a day. Because the minute you get out back on the street, you're on a street. You know that funny, rotten feeling of reality? You can smell Secaucus instantly. You're walking along, you know, in the beer cans and the cigar butts. And you, you notice that in the movies, you never see guys like Anthony Perkins walking along streets that have been preceded, that he has been preceded on by poodles. <laughs> you don't see that side of life. Did I tell you here? Now, wait a minute. Let me, I'll tell you a little, uh, let me tell you a little story now. I, I, I just was reminded of something. About four months ago, I was called in to be a technical advisor on a movie. Now, that's, that's a great moment. I mean, you know, what the heck am I going to technical advise them on, you know? But they called me up and they said, Shemp, Mr. Shepard. And let me tell you, boy, being a technical advisor is a great racket. You ought to see the money they make. Boy, I couldn't believe it. They called me up and they said, we're going to give you this money to technical advisors. I says, and what? He says, New York. Well, we're from the coast. And we'd like to have somebody who's really on the scene down there. Come on and tell us about it. And it's about the village. It's about the hip world, you know. And figure, you know, you've been around. You've seen it. So show up on the set Monday morning. And I said, gee, <laughs> I always wanted to get that call from Hollywood. Never thought it would be as a big shot expert. Uh, do I get my name on a screen? It's why, of course. Technical advisors are important to our industry. Without those technical advisors, we would not be able to pursue truth. with the efficiency that we pursue it. We would not be able to have those little subtle touches that make a place a real place, to make reality real. And we figure you can help us. <laughs> That's truth. I know about that. <laughs> Making a place a place, yeah. And I'm sitting in this crummy, rotten office I've got. And you can smell the moldering papers on my desk. I've got one of those desks, you know, where if you watch it long enough, you see things moving. 
under all the papers. There are some papers that have been there for the last three guys that have occupied... Oh, that gives you an awful sense, you know. It's like the catacombs in Rome. You walk through those catacombs, you know, and you have a vague feeling that one day you'll be looked at by tourists, you know. Now, see, you look at the funny one with a bump on the head there. And it's you, your skull, Sarah and I. Yeah. And so there I am in my little office, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, impressed by the fact I'm going to be a technical advisor on something. Nobody ever asked me about anything technical. And so I walk out on the street, I look around, and there I could see the spires of New York. Yeah, there it is. The Empire State Building. Standing there. Boy, what a building. It just stands there. Looks down over Queens. Occasionally glances out at Staten Island. Just stands there. You know, are you where that, that, that building wiggles? Under the wind? And they claim that if enough people, it only takes maybe a hundred, were to get on the right side of the Empire State Building, and all together, one, two, get it going, <laughs> which way would you aim it, gang? Can't you see it laying across the east side where all them rich people live, you know? Boy, it just cuts it down there. Well, that, that's the scene. So you got it. The Empire, I look up there and here I see the Empire State Building. Beautiful building. And then I see the Seagram Building. That fantastic monument to booze. <laughs> well, <laughs> only in New York would you have a building named that, you know, booze. <laughs> and it stands there, you know, it looks down. It sways even more than the other one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and some quiet nights, if you stand there quietly out there on Park Avenue, you can hear a hiccup. <laughs> and so I'm looking over all these great buildings, and I says, I'm the expert. I'm going to be the guy to tell them about New York. And so Monday morning dawns bright and early. You know, it's one of those crisp, cool mornings, and I'm not used to being up at 7. I have not seen a morning since 1958. I didn't even know they still had them, you know. <laughs> you know it's funny how you forget about all that. You forget about the moon and everything after a while, you know. And, and I'm up there, and I'm blinking of bright sunlight. And I can see all these people hurrying off to work. They've got a different look. There's a different crowd of people that believe in the daylight. Yeah, they've got a certain dedicated fatness about them. You know? They're all hurrying downtown. They're going past me. And I'm struggling my way through the morning. And all of a sudden, I am at the place where they're going to shoot the scene. It is being shot with Sean Connery. And it is not a James Bond movie. He is playing a hippie, a beatnik. Can you imagine James Bond, a hippie? That in itself is a contradiction in terms, you know. But here he is, and, and they're going to shoot it on 7th Street. I used to live over there, over off 2nd Avenue. Do you know anything about that neighborhood? Well, it, it's one of the yeastiest neighborhoods in the world. And I see all these guys running up and down the prop men, 
and they've got little whisk brooms and little dust buckets. <laughs> and they're taking off the sidewalk, the thing that makes 7th Street what it is, you know. And I say to them, wait, fellas, wait, I'm the technical expert, bring more. And they look up at me and say, what do you mean? What kind of a nut is this we hired? And they're painting all the garbage, kicking blue. And they trot out. Uh, you'd never saw the kids. They, you couldn't believe it. They had five little blonde pigtailed chicks that they brought from Darien. And they're standing there with little rubber balls, you know. And all, across the street, the real kids are that they cleared off the block. All the little pot smokers, you know. <laughs> They're all standing there. You can see the switchblades, you know. And I realized then that the search for truth is not easy. Let's give truth a big hand. We'll be back. So know what we hear in the lovely little town of New York. The Empire City. What we think of that. Let's hear it. San Francisco, uh, that does not necessarily represent the views of the management. Unfortunately, you are suffering the results of true democracy, which, as we know, can be a pain sometimes in the you-know-what, because when you get democracy, you get a lot of guys hollering, yeah, all right, now, all right, gang, all together now. Let's send greetings to that lovely metropolis to the north of us here. That bastion of tolerance. That recognized leader of culture in these United States. Boston. Boston. I, I, I don't know what to say. Just to give you an idea how rotten mankind is Boston, we are now participating in a genuine laboratory experiment here. We're broadcasting from New York, and now all of you here in the limelight here in friendly Greenwich Village, <laughs> uh, let's give our hometown a cheer and tell us what we think of our hometown, New York. Well, I don't know exactly what to say. Everywhere you look, you see dissatisfaction. Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, the other day I'm walking past the United Nations, UN. This is the bastion of hopes and dreams. You ever looked at the UN in the bright sunlight? And you know, it stands up there overlooking the East River. And it's all the hopes and dreams of mankind poured into this ugly building, stands up there looking down, and you walk past it, and you can, if you can get through the pickets. <laughs> and the other day, I'm walking past the UN, you know, and I'm very innocent. I'm over there on First Avenue, and I'm walking along. I see all the flags shining in the sun, and the flagpoles are banging away there, you know. I'm walking along, and here's a bunch of guys picketing. 
And one guy is standing right at the head of the pickets. And he's got a beard. He's angry looking. He's got a big sign. And he's walking along, you know, with that, you know, this kind of walk. He's holding it up. And the cars are going past him. And all the clutches are looking out and they're reading the sign, you know, and they're driving their... They're driving their Mustangs along, and I'm looking at... He's got the sign. This is a picket walk, you know. And I stop there, and I look at it. See, and I'm trying to get a look at a sign. He keeps going around, and I see all of a sudden what it says. It says, love. And I say, by George. Here's a guy. You know, that's an interesting premise. And so I walk along with him for a while. I look at the sign. He's walking along, and he's looking at me, you know. Gives me a look. And I say, that's a fascinating premise. That that sign is, is based on a premise that he's got it and nobody else has. See? So I walk up to him and I say, hey, Mac. You know, I'm trying to catch up with him. I say, hey, Mac. Hey, Mac. You figure you got a stranglehold on love? Hey, what are you, fascist? He's got the sign, see? And I says, no, no, I'm not a fascist, Mac. I happen to be a Rotary Club member. <laughs> I don't know what your religion is, but you got a sign that says love. Well, now, what about that love? I love going here. He says, oh, yeah? I said, yeah! With a sign, see, like that. We're going back and forth. Thirty-five of us in the line, you know. Got the big sign. I says, well, look, Mac, I'll put my love up against yours any day. He says, oh, yeah, fascist. Orville Faubus lover. I says, I don't even know Orville Faubus. I only know one guy named Orville. Orville Schmidlap. Who's Faubus? Smart guy. Back and forth, he goes like this, see? And I says, all right, I'll put my love against yours anything. And he stopped. He's a smart guy. Woo! And then I realized he had more love than I did. I was unarmed. But these are great moments in mankind's revelation. You know, you begin to understand things after a while, and you begin to understand that inside of each one of us, down that little backbone we got, there's all kinds of wires. And each one of those wires carries another message. Nobody knows exactly the nature of what these messages are. The perceptions, the feelings, the passions, those things that go to make up this magnificent creature, the human being. I, I wonder if, if we could somehow understand it, if the, if the squirrels have pickets with little signs that say love. If we could read the signs. <laughs> Well, I happen to know something about old Shep. And I'll never forget, you know, we, we, we watch we watch these. How many of you have watched dictators? You know, you see them on the screen. Hardly anybody ever sees a dictator. You ever really seen one? You see them on the screen. And you'll see this little flickering image. And then you'll hear Huntley Chinkley. What, what's his name? Brinkley Cunkley? You know, these two account executives that give us the news every night. And Huntley says today, today, uh, Dave, <laughs> David, hi, Dave. Uh, today, Dave, uh, Premier Castro of Cuba addressed the Cuban people. We have a film here 
of him about to make a statement. You see this fantastic bearded face. And you hear, Ah, amigos! Ah, I'm out of peace, Camaro! You hear the crowd going, Shoo-oh! Wow, what a thing. Wouldn't you love to be a dictator? I mean, seriously, wouldn't you like to stand up on the, on a balcony? And there, down below you, one million people. Little tiny grains of sand stretching all the way to the horizon. And there you are. Charlie Applerock. And your picture's on every postage stamp. And underneath it, it says, El Benefactorissimo. Our benefactor. Me, Charlie. Yes, sir, Bob. Well, we sit here and laugh, see, because we don't think it's in us. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened to me one time. The only time I've ever had that sense of being a genuine dictator. Fantastic power. Now, the only place where most of us in the ordinary workings of life will ever get a taste of this is in places like the army. Hear the ex-second lieutenants laughing in this crowd? Each one of him regretting the days that he took those bars off and went back to the mail room? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. I'll never forget the fantastic feeling of success I had one day when an ex-lieutenant colonel fitted me for a pair of loafers and kept calling me, Sir. And I kept saying, they're tight in the heel, Mac. <laughs> I knew he was a lieutenant colonel, you know. Yeah, by George. We all got it inside us. And one time, I'm this GI, see? I want to tell you a little thing that happened to me. It's a true story. I think I've only told it once on the air. Because one day, they're going to catch up with me and it's forget it. <laughs> you know, these are some things you don't talk about. <laughs> And I, I'm a GIC, and I'm hanging around the I'm hanging around the USO, and the USO is in Washington D.C. See, I'm just there for a brief stay with my little sorry company. We have been sent there for special training. We were in a screwdriver repair patrol, <laughs> and my little outfit was fixing handles. We were learning how to fix the handles and stuff. The very highly secret outfit there. And, and uh, we were taking special training. So every night I would go down to the USO. Well, now you never know who you're going to meet in Washington. There's this beautiful girl. And I keep seeing her. And one thing led to the next. And we started to have dates. And I, by this time I've been in the Army long enough, you know, my uniforms are all neatly tailored. I've made PFC. I've come up the hard way. I got my good conduct ribbon, you know, that shows they never caught me. I was able to fake it. I've got my little badge that says expert, and underneath it it says rifle, bazooka, bubble gum, you know. Various things I was expert in, you know. So I was, you know, I was really feeling like I was right on top of it. And I was assigned to Washington. Now, wartime Washington, you couldn't believe it. It was just fantastic. I mean, you know, they talk about Babylon. 
They talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, that reminds me. I just thought of something. We all know what happens in Sodom. But what happens in Gomorrah? They never told me about that. This must be fantastic. <laughs> they were so terrible, they didn't even mention it in the Bible. They were just... <laughs> that was censored right out, you know. So here it is, you know. It's Washington. I'm walking around. I got my PFC's pay in my pocket, you know, $4 and a half. And playing it big. And <laughs> I go down. I play ping pong with it. You know, I'm a great left-handed ping pong player. You know, ding, ding. You know, this playing. You know, I'm getting big. And so finally, our little relationship had ripened. It had ripened to the point where we would... We would walk in the park, and we would go to restaurants. I'll, I'll never forget the fantastic moment of embarrassment when I sat in this restaurant. You know, out in the Midwest, they don't know from seafood. And in fact, the idea of seafood in the Midwest is a puna loaf <laughs> made with celery and breadcrumbs. We would have seafood that, on that night, tuna, sometimes salmon if my dad was feeling really rotten, you know. That was seafood. And so I go to the seafood restaurant with this girl. It's a big place called the Mermaid. You know, we go there. Uh, you know, I like seafood. I like, you know, I like salmon loaf and that stuff. So we also, we also went big in the Midwest for dried haddock. You ever had dried haddock? I mean, I, you know, it's a fantastic... I, I had this idea. The Midwest is a really deprived area. And, and, and every time we saw pictures of people eating lobsters, we always had the feeling out there that they were eating spiders. My mother used to say, Oh, I couldn't eat a spider. Oh. So naturally, you know, there, there was a definite anti-seafood area, so... This chick said, let's go to the best restaurant in the area, seafood restaurant. Says, okay. So we sit down in this restaurant, and I pick up the menu, and they have all these things like, oh, a blue point, little necks, cherry stone. I know what this stuff is. I don't even know what they are, and it's a clam. I mean, clams. We used to call clams things we'd see in the street, got pretty, you know. I know it's bad taste, but it's the Midwest, friend. That also was referred to as the oyster. You know, I can't see myself actually eating stuff. Wow, you know, gee, clams, all that. And then they had, they had things like, oh, uh, lobsters. And then I hit the one thing that I recognized. The one thing. I said to her, man comes over, you know, we're both sitting there. She orders something like Little Necks on the half shell. I didn't realize that they come awful strong. Four dollars I've got to play with. So she says, Little Necks on the half shell, and I think I'll have, uh, I think I'll have some Alaskan king crab. Well, that word had an interesting connotation in the Army, too. <laughs> You'll have to explain it to her later. Maybe she knows, but hasn't been told yet. <laughs> Quit hissing, will you? I'm sorry, honey. I can give you a prescription. It's all right. <laughs> so, so, 
I'm sitting there at the table, and I've got this big menu, you know, and, and the man's waiting for me to order, and I there's one thing I recognize. Scallops. I said, I'll have some scallops. And he said, well, all right, will you have, will you have potatoes with that? Back home, scallops are potatoes. Already I'm backing up, you know. I said, I'm ad living. I said, well, I don't know. I said, so, yeah, yeah, uh, potatoes. He said, well, how will you have them? French fried? Will you have them baked or scallops? Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll have them French fried. And I'm sitting there worried now, you know, and about ten minutes later, these little fried golf balls arrive. <laughs> And this girl is saying things to me like, uh, gee, you know, the scallops are very good here. This is the time of year for them. This is the best year for them. <laughs> they were in front of me. And you know the strange thing about it? I took one scallop, and I was hooked. And ever since that time, everywhere I go, seafood. But seafood, you see, means more to me than scallops. It means what happened the next day. I played it big, see. And she said to me about halfway through the meal, I was enjoying it. Had my scallops, my french fries. She didn't discover we were, you know, I'm a tuna fish man. I'm faking it up big. And she said, say, would you like to come out to my, to my aunt's house over the weekend? I am going there. And how would you like to go with me? It's in the country. Would you like to go with me? I said, yeah, I've got a pass. I'd love to. Wow. A weekend in the country. Do you know that in Indiana, the country means the dumps? And all the time, you know, since I'm a kid, I've been reading stories about weekends in the country. And it has a whole connotation. You know, Cary Grant, guys wearing blazers, Guys with tennis rackets, you know, and all this stuff. I'm a PFC, see, weekend in the country. And so she said, all right, I'll tell you, we will pick you up tomorrow, and we will drive down to the railroad station, and we'll take the train. It's in northern New Jersey. <laughs> That's a long way, you know. I said, yeah, well, fine. Now, my idea is, is to get in, the, in, the, in my dad's Oldsmobile, you know, and drive to the forest preserve. <laughs> That's the country, you know, where you sit around, you roast potatoes, and you come back. This is a big deal. So I said, gee, uh, going up to New Jersey, I've never been to New Jersey. She said, well, it's lovely. It's a town called Morristown. <laughs> well, now, now, in those days, Morristown was lovely, friend. But ever since Howard Johnson came, of course, things... So, so I, I, you know, I'm all excited about this. And the next day, they pick me up, and we drive down to the railroad station, and I'm sitting in the train with her mother, who is a very, very, very dignified lady. And, you know, it, it's funny. I could see, now looking back on it over these years, I can see she was feeling me out. Because this chick, you know, she had the look in the eye. You know that hungry look, man? 
You've all seen that look. You know that look that says, here I am. It's going to cost you. <laughs> like it's going to cost the rest of your life, you know. But she had that look, see, and, and the mother sensed it. You know, there was this whole big thing going. We're sitting in the car there, and in, in the train, we're opposite each other in the seat. And I'm wearing my PFC uniform. It's sharp and clean. I'm all pressed. And this lady is sitting over here next to me, and we're looking out of the window at the countryside going by, and the chick is sitting opposite me in her flowered dress with a hungry look. And this, this woman is, is, is she's asking me questions, you know. They sounded very innocent. Like she says, is your mother having the same difficulty we're having in Washington, the servant problem? Now, that sounds like I'm making it up. She honestly asked me if my mother was having a servant problem. Well, I don't know whether you know my mother. If anything, my mother was having a slave problem. And she was it. <laughs> you know, and, and, and she says, is she having a servant problem? And I said, well, it's not as bad in the Midwest. I knew it was a loaded question. I didn't want to say yes. I didn't want to say no. I could see the quicksand up around my ankles already. You know? So I said, well, we don't. <laughs> we, uh, my mother just doesn't tell me about what hell it is on the home front, you know. Doesn't write about those things, but I guess she must be having trouble. She was having trouble. Every night, she would have to go and help to ring Mr. Bruner out. <laughs> you know, the worst thing that happened to Mr. Bruner next door to us was the war came on, and he had to go to work. <laughs> and it's not easy to work when you're drunk. So they would ring him out for the war effort every night. See? <laughs> so that was my mother's chief problem. So we rode on and on, and this lady is saying nice little things to me all the way saying things like, uh, do you like the army? <laughs> well, I didn't know what to say, see, because I was funny looking at her eye, and then she says, you know, we come from an army family. <laughs> an army family. <laughs> I guess, you know, I says, well, so do I, you know. Like, I'm a PFC, and my brother just made T5. I guess we're an army family. <laughs> My old man's been running away from the draft for the last year and a half. He's developed a fantastic limp, and he keeps one eye closed and all that, you know. <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, it's Army family. So we go on and on in this little casual conversation, and she's getting kind of to like me. I can sense that, you know. She, she senses the buffoon, you know. And so we're going a little further on. And we come now to Morristown, New Jersey. And we walk off the train, and it is one of those beautiful days that Jersey has once every 15 years. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. The sun is shining. And we step out on the platform. And I had come from the Midwest. Remember that. And our idea of suburbs is just where the used car lots begin. Those are the suburbs. Endless miles of used car lots and junkyards. 
vacant lots, and once in a while a little gray house in the middle of it, the big gas tank. Those are the suburbs, and I didn't know the suburbs had trees. And you know, I was amazed. I got up and here are the trees. It's a beautiful town. I could smell the air. It was clean and magnificent. And we walked through this tree-lined street, and we arrived at the house. Now, this house, how many of you know the kind of houses they have in certain areas of New Jersey, like, oh, like Deal? Have you seen some of those places? <laughs> They're fantastic 19th century monstrosities. You know, they always have a name like Murchison's Folly. <laughs> and in 1887, this robber baron built this fantastic house, and he kept adding wings onto it and horns and bugles. <laughs> And he had great big wooden parachutes and trees. <laughs> and big bold windows with virgins in it and all that, you know. And it became known as Murchison's Folly. Well, here I am standing in front of Murchison's Folly in a fantastic place. And it's extremely elegant. Beautiful time. Oh, by the way, before we go any further, what radio station are you listening to, gang? Oh, come on. If there's anything I hate, it's bad ad-libbing. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you how to ad-lib funny. Radio Moscow is not funny. Had you said Radio Free Yugoslavia. <laughs> or Radio Free Bronx. <laughs> Poor slob. Let's give him a hand. <laughs> you better hide under the coat. He's got those rimless glasses with that CCNY glow. <laughs> By the way, this guy over here in the corner says, never fool with the pros. Coleslaw. Would you like a little mayonnaise on your ears, friend? <laughs> so, you know, here it is. I'm in Morristown, New Jersey, and it's very proper and polite, and I meet the ant. And she is a lovely woman, really lovely. You know, she's the kind of lady that was married in the movies that I used to see to Lewis Stone. Do you remember, do you remember Andy Hardy's mother? She's kind of Faye Bader cubed, this lady. She's got a motherly, gentle, very, very, oh, civilized quality to her. See? And so now we're sitting at her, her table first time in my life, we are having a dinner that is served by servants in Morristown, New Jersey. You can hardly credit your senses, but you'd be surprised what's going on in some of those dens of iniquity, just outside the main stand, just past the Manny Moe and Jack stores. There it is, see? And so we're sitting there and we're eating and I'm trying to pick the right forks. It's kind of nice out. And now I see outside the door and outside the window there's a gentle rain beginning to come down. It's raining. It's a soft summer day. The rain is coming down. And it's getting a little tough, you know. The rain is coming down harder and harder. And so we finish our meal and I'm sitting next to this lovely girl who is my date, you know. We're sitting there. And here's her aunt. And there over there is her mother. 
And they begin to talk about the uncle who is in the army. <laughs> and the aunt says, you know, James is in the army too. And I said, well, it's a lot of dog faces. A lot of us are in the army. She says, yes, James was very glad to go. He felt that he had a duty. And I certainly admire all of you who have gone. And we're sitting. That's one of those embarrassing things. And we're sort of sitting in the living room. And, and this girl and I wanted to get off by ourselves. Just do anything. Just be by ourselves. Walk, you know. And finally the aunt said, why don't you two young people, why don't you go down to the A&P, which is open tonight till 9. Why don't you go down to the A&P, take a little walk, and get some ice cream? We'll have a little party. And, you, and I could see she's saying to us, go on and split, see. And so I, oh, great, you're a great gal, see. So I says, yeah. <laughs> and the chick next to me says, yes, be nice. I have got no raincoat. I am there in my PFC suntans. It was a beautiful day. I have not brought my raincoat. And it's raining out. And so the aunt says, oh, listen. She says, don't worry about that. James has left one of his raincoats up in the closet. Why don't you go up and get it? It's in the room you're using, you know. That's James's room, so go ahead and get it. So I go upstairs, you know. And it's this beautiful room with, with white with that kind of white gauzy curtain, you know, that flows, that rich people kind of, oh, you know what I mean, mill over on curtains, you know. They're kind of billowing out, and it's got little ties and stuff on it. Oh, just fantastic bed with a, with a fluffy stuff. And so I go up to the closet, and I open it up, and here is this other guy, this other G.I.'s clothes hanging there. And I see my own closet back home with the, electric blue sport coat hanging there, waiting for me to come home to take up my post-war swinging life. I could see back home my zoot suits, you know, with the high, the belts, the alligator belts all hanging there waiting for me to come, you know. My saddle shoes, one after the other. My fielder's mitt hanging there. And I, I look in this guy's I look in this guy's closet, and here he's got hanging all these gray suits. These beautiful gray flannel suits are all hanging there. And I see these black shoes, all shine, just waiting for James to return home. And I see his sport coat. He was the kind of guy, you know, that has these tweed coats with the leather things at the elbow. Where I come from, that means you're poor. Somehow that coat didn't look worn, you know, but it had things, leather things. It had little twigs growing out of it, you know. And then there was a, there was a jacket, there was a blue jacket. I'll never forget this. It was a blue jacket with little silver buttons. And it had over the pocket here a big shield with a horse. And underneath it there were Latin words. You know, like in the hock and brick and a conk, in s equitation clunk. <laughs> you know, he was, a, he was a horseman. I look in there and I could smell the leather and this beautiful clothes coming out. And way over on this end, 
there is hanging an OD raincoat, a full-length OD raincoat. And I take the thing out, you know, I put it on. It's just about my size. He's exactly my height. I put this thing on. It's, you know, it's just an OD raincoat. It's, it's got a kind of a funny feel, though. It's got a belt. Mine never had a belt. I put the belt around. I stand in front of the mirror, and I look. Instinctively, I snap to attention. Instinctively, my gut goes going. The little fear comes in my eyes. I am looking at a brigadier general. I had not noticed on the on these little on these little shoulder straps there are sewn sewn. Get it? Two little embroidered silver stars. One on each shoulder. Well, I have my G.I. hat, you know, with the orange braid all around it. I look in the picture in the mirror, and I must tell you, friends, <laughs> it was a great feeling. I would like to say that I said to myself, no, you are one of them. You are one of the noble men. You are one of the boys. No, there was that instant that said, Shep, at last you've hit your true level. <laughs> and it was another voice that said, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a pig, you know what. And I'm standing there, seeing I'm in Jim's, old Jim, you know. I'm in Jim's coat. And I said, For crying out loud, this guy's a, a brigadier general. And I've got a straight GI enlisted man PFC hat. Well, I go back to the closet and I look in there and up on the top there are about three big hats with the things, you know. And I've always had that terrible desire to just see what they feel like. You know? Just to put one on. And I reach up there. You know, they, they've got a sweat fan just like a real hat. You know, I, I had thought up to that time that, that officers didn't sweat. <laughs> what do they need a sweat van? You know, I, I thought that officers didn't do a lot of things we did. <laughs> yeah, you get these little ideas, you know, when you're a PFC and long enough. And I take that hat and I put it on. Boy, it's my size. Seven and one-eighth. I lay it down there, snap it to... I am practicing giving an officer's salute. <laughs> you know, that just a little... That's a general salute. You know, that, that look, and I'm, I'm walking around in front of this full-length mirror. It's raining out. And downstairs, I hear the girl calling up the stairwell. She says, let's go, it's getting late! Now I had a decision. What to do? Well, I did it. I am now downstairs. Stars. Eagle. Underneath PFC. <laughs> 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 
what a moment. It sounds like I'm inventing it. I'm telling you, it's, a, it's, it's the truth. This is a true story. I get downstairs, and the lady says, Oh, you're just the same size as James. <laughs> Your coat fits, doesn't it? You know, there are some ladies that are so... Things are done, you know. You know? <laughs> Let's say yard bird on him, you know? <laughs> she said, it looks very nice. And I says, well, you don't mind if I wear Jim's hat, do you? She says, no, it looks very nice on you. I said, yes, I think so. And uh, this girl, she doesn't know from nothing, you know. She's a, she's a USO girl, so she's nice. A true debutante type, you know. So now we are out on the street. It's raining. It's drifting down. And I am surprised to note that officers' raincoats work. <laughs> Which was a twist. I had never seen a, a, an army raincoat work. My raincoat was like a sieve, a strainer. It just strained out the bigger lumps of crud, you know. It filtered the water that came in on you. So this is a great raincoat. I'm walking along the street, you know, with that thing she got her hand. I'm like, you know, we're walking down under the trees. And it's Morristown. I, you know, it's, it's a quiet town. I figure there's nothing going to happen. It's just going to be one of those great moments. We're on our way to the A.M.P. I mean, a brigadier general going to the A.M.P. See? <laughs> well, they eat for crying out loud. They eat too. I mean, they got to go and eat and do out of all the stuff. So I'm on the way to the A.M.P. So I go in through the door, and by this time, you know, I'm all involved with it. You know, we're swinging, I'm talking, and we're, we're jabbering it up. And I begin to forget. It's funny how quickly you just, you know, forget this thing. So I walk into the A.M.P., and there's about, oh, you know, a couple of dozen people all walking around. There's a bunch of them back here in the beer department, the frozen food department. An old chef walks in. And you can hear the music coming out. You know, they got a record player. I walk in there. I'm looking at the cheese. She's trailing behind me, and I'm whispering little words of love in her ear, you see. We recognize this is the only time we're going to get a fish. And so back over there in the baked ham department, back in the delicatessen division, I'm getting real close to her, see. And I say, hey, baby, how about later? And she goes, hee, <laughs> And I noticed this guy, I noticed the guy back there with the slicer. He's looking. This is the first time he's seen a brigadier general trying to make the scene. <laughs> you know, he can hear it. So, so we're walking around back there and there's slicing the meat. And we go back by the ice cream department. And there it is. There's the tutti fruity. There's the chocolate. There's all the ice creams. And, and, and the girl says to me, she says, well, what should we have? I said, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference when you're in love. I'm trying out all the great lines that I'd heard Andy Hardy use. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. I, I, I must hasten to tell you, at that time, I had, just, I had just made the transition from my 17th year to my 18th. I am a cool 18th. And about four months 
before, I had just started to shave. And the way I would shave, I would rub real hard in the morning. And it would go off, see? I was very pink and very fresh. Ah, you... And now we have what we have come for, and we're pushing the little cart out. And we get into the checkout line. And I'm deeply involved with the chick now. And we're in the checkout line. They've only, you know, have you ever wondered that great mystery? How come they got so many cash registers? And they've only got two lines? Have you ever wondered about all those empty checkout lines? 4,000 people are all waiting in line. And, and there I am. See, I'm in the line. I walk up to the end of the line, and I see this G.I. He's standing there. And I walk up, and I'm turning around to talk to the chick, and I look back again, and he snaps, too. He says, yes, sir, yes, sir. Here, you can have my place in line, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much, soldier. I have moved up one notch, you know, and he's standing back there looking. This is the youngest Brigadier General he's ever seen. This was a staff sergeant who was at least 40. You know, a regular army man, you know, R.A. There I am standing there with my two little stars twinkling, my pink cheeks glowing. And little old ladies are turning, you know, they say, oh, how are you? And now I am back, I am, I am, I'm up to the counter, see, and, and the kid is standing back there and he's ringing them up, and he's got another guy that's bagging the stuff, and he takes one look at me and he sees these two stars, and he leans forward and he says, General, sir, I'm going to be drafted. Are there any strings that you could pull for me? And I turn to him, say, do you... Remember, I am in the handle platoon of a screwdriver repair outfit. <laughs> I say to him, of course, you realize the new modern army is very technical. Requires a certain amount of technical knowledge before I could help you understand that. And I can see this staff sergeant behind me looking at me, and you can just see what he's saying. These damn Air Corps men. <laughs> The first thing that a regular army man thinks when he sees a high-ranking officer of the age of 12, he must be a P-38 colonel who flies a fighter plane. So I'm standing there looking grizzled. And I walk out now with my little thing full of ice cream. And I've got my hamburger that we bought, a few little hors d'oeuvres, some pickled snails, we're on our way home through the rain. General Shepard is returning from the commissary. <laughs> We're walking along. Now, let me tell you the awful, fantastic moment I see. We are about 15 feet from the house, and I figure I'm going to make it clean. No harm done. No. Just, I've just given everybody at the A&P a cheap thrill. I've given this staff sergeant a story to tell the guys back in the infantry for the next hundred years about this four-year-old brigadier he saw. You know, I figure it's all clean, and I'm walking along with her, and I'm beginning to feel real great, you know. 
Uh, no, I, I keep looking. It's great. You know, you don't see how wonderful it is to look down at the stars instead of looking up, you know, all the time. And those hats feel so solid, man. To those of you who have never worn an officer's hat, I'll tell you 99%, I know it now, 99% of their sense of power comes from that hat. Well, that's true of the cowboys, too. Well, how do you think Gary Cooper would have looked at a beanie? I mean, hats are important, you know. And all they had given me to wear was this little piece of cloth with a little thing on it, you know. But now I've got a big hat that goes up like that. Big stars all over and big eagles shining. And I'm walking along. Now, you got to see. I am, I am actually consummating one of Americans' biggest dreams. Faking it. All the way. We are out in front of the house now. You got it? We come up the house like this, it's raining. And I see coming along the street a brown Ford. A brown Ford. And on the side it says USMP. In little block letters. And I see these two guys with these big white hats, you know, and they're driving along. And I'm walking along like this, you see, and I'm walking on the outside. I'm a gentleman, see. And she's on the inside, and all of a sudden I try to get inside, you know, get her out there. And with that, I see the guy that's driving, he stops steering, and he's, you know, three times he salutes, like that. And I, I throw this little salute, and the guy next to him salutes out the back window, and then I see him talking. I see the guy next to the driver say something, and they start to turn around. Oh, my God. You never saw anything like it. I broke all world records for the hundred yard up the stairs dash done by Brigadier Generals. I was up the stairs, over and into the house like mad that I'm still And she says to me, what's the hurry? I says, I didn't want to get Jim's coat too wet. It's beginning to soak through on the arms. Up the stairs I go and I hang it in there next to those beautiful Brooks Brothers suits. That wet, that wet raincoat. And I take this hat and I put it up there. And all of a sudden, it's gone. I'm standing in front of the mirror. My rumpled GI suit. You know, the bulges out. You could see these two little stripes. One of them was beginning to come off, you know, where the thread was raveling. A little bit. I'm standing there. I've lost a foot and a half in height. At least, I come down the steps, and the lady says, Oh, there's two soldiers here who would like to see you. <laughs> and I said to the girl, I says, Look, quick, she's on the steps with me. And I says, Listen, we haven't been out of the house in a week, got it? <laughs> we haven't been out of the house in a week. And she says, Yes, all right, all right. And so we go down the stairs, and here are these two guys, you know, they're with the big white hats, with the armbands. The guy looks at me. I look at him. I say, what do you want? He says, we'd like to see the general. I says, the general? Oh, huh. you're not looking for me. Uh, Mrs. Merchant, uh, they want to see your husband. And she says, oh, well, 
I'll have to tell the boys. And she goes to the door, and she says, Well, my husband, you see, is overseas. <laughs> and she was so nice, you know. And, and, and these two guys stand there, big lantern jaws. Yeah, sure, lady. Is he uh, uh, a general about this size? She says, yes, he is. Well, lady, does he have a little round, fat face? She says, no, he has a, he has a gray mustache. And the guys look there, you know, I love the MP mind. It's very literal. One of them says, I told you, Chuck. I told you that guy walked like a PFC out of your mind. Stars, you nuts. All right, I'm sorry, lady, we made a mistake. And I looked back over the shoulder and said, yeah, fellas, I just came in with my girl. Okay, Mac. Yeah, all right, Mac. Goes down the step. Yeah, Mac, okay, Mac. You got a pass, Mac? Yeah, Mac. Three day, Mac. Jim had sat. I sat down there with a big cut crystal ball of tutti frutti. And she poured a little cherry hearing over it. I thought it was cherry syrup. You know, like we used to get back at the big boy drive-in. And I didn't want to say, I didn't want to tell her that her syrup had gone bad. <laughs> And I'm spooning it up, you know, I'm sitting there. My little stripes hanging on by a bare thread. My three-day pass in my breast pocket. And this chick next to me. And you know, I, I somehow secretly knew. It's funny how the human animal has instincts about time. I somehow secretly knew that I had reached the pinnacle of my life. Never again was I to even remotely approach the rank of Brigadier General. I knew it. No matter what kind of definition you use of rank. And I'm sitting there, savoring it. And I look over here, and on the side of, his, of the walls, you know, they've got glass cases with books. Leather-covered books. And there's a bronze statue. It's all crumpled in bronze. And we, we, the kind of statues we had at home were, well, often the statue that we would see most of was a black leopard with a clock in its gut. <laughs> that was our idea of a statue at home, you know? <laughs> and I see this big piece of bronze and I'm looking up there and I can smell the kitchen. They're fixing a little snack for later on. And I see the maid walking past out there. You know, for that minute, I had an insight into another, a completely alien way of life. The life where people go into the army as generals because it's their duty. <laughs> and here I am sitting on this French love seat 
I'm a representative of the rest of the population. We go into the army because they're biting at our hocks. <laughs> we go into the army because a letter arrived that says, Dear friend, your neighbors have elected you as being it. <laughs> well, I'm sitting there, you know, and I, I just love this feeling. See. I see the books, and I can smell that kitchen out there, and I can hear the rustle of the maid's uniform, and somebody presses the doorbell off in the distant wing, and it's one of those doorbells that goes boom, boom. It's a rich people doorbell. You know, boom, boom. Our doorbell would go, ah! You know, it would just go, ah! And my old man would holler, tell Bruner to beat it! I don't have no time for bowling tonight with a drunk. And I hear this, boom, boom. Oh, and I love that feeling. It's just warm and deep and... I felt something, I felt a yearning that we all try to suppress in our workaday lives. Inside of each one of us, believe me, there is a latent dictator, a latent brigadier general, a latent rotten spoiled aristocrat. And we never ever get a chance to achieve it. And so we go through our lives pretending that we've chosen to remain one of the boys. You know, for years I've been saying to people, oh, I didn't go to OCS, I just want to be a, one of the boys. <laughs> oh, boy. So now, before we leave, let us salute all of those who have made it, from those of us who haven't. Let's hear it. All right, if you're going to do it, do it! All right, soreheads. Don't tell me if tonight the phone rang and they said we've been watching you. This is Daryl Zanuck. And we'd like to do your life story with Cary Grant playing it. You'd love it, wouldn't you? A girl says you bet. Oh, what a sick world. Let's hear it. This is Gene Trevor.